Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another day of worship. Beginning now, as we have gathered in the Sunday school hour to study your word together in Romans, we thank you for, in your providence, allowing this letter to be recorded and passed down to us, preserved as Holy Scripture for us to read and study together. We thank you that it is breathed out by you and profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good work. We thank you for the sixth chapter, as we've been studying about our new life in Christ and the fact that we have died to sin. And we just pray that you would instruct us, that you would open our hearts, that this would be more than just an exercise in Bible study to where we would gain mental information, but that this would be a time in which, through your word, we are hearing from you, that we are being instructed by you, and that your instruction would result in the renewal of our minds, the conviction of sin in our hearts, the encouragement unto holiness in our hearts, that would lead to a transformation of life, and that we would uh, go away from here both humbled and rejoicing as we have studied your word. And we pray, Lord, we know that that type of heart work only happens through the Holy Spirit as He takes Your Word and washes us with it. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would, um, in Your mercy and grace, do that work in our souls this morning. Help me uh, to be a faithful teacher this morning. Use me despite my frailty and sin. And bless our time richly this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, well, you can see where we're at in our class. We're coming toward the end. We only have this Sunday and two more. The next two classes will be focusing on Romans 7, and that will be the end of our class. And I will come back at some later time and finish up Romans, which I know there's a lot in the latter half of Romans, if you will, that a lot of people will be excited to study and learn about. But let's move a little bit through just an introduction or a review of where we've been. You remember Romans 1, 1 through 17, the opening of the letter, Paul tells the Romans how he wants to come to them and preach the gospel in Rome because in it, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed by which those who believe can be saved. And then he talks about why everyone needs this saving righteousness revealed in the gospel in this larger section here in which he lays out the unrighteousness of men, all men, Jew and Gentile, which then leads them to be under God's wrath. So why do we need to be saved? Why do we need the righteousness of God? Well, because we are all unrighteous and under God's wrath. And then in chapter 3, verse 21 through 31, sort of the real heart of the book, he unpacks this gospel in greater detail. He talks about how it reveals a righteousness that is a right standing before God that is revealed or given to us by God as a gift, a gracious gift. And that the righteousness that God gives us as a gift is based on Christ's atoning sacrifice, and it's given to every sinner who believes. Okay, so this is justification by faith, by grace through faith in Christ alone. 
and he unpacks that in great detail in that little section. And then in chapter 4, he goes on to talk about how this gospel is not somehow contrary to the Old Testament, but uses Genesis 15, 6 as a way of showing you that justification by faith is actually there in the Old Testament as well. That this is in harmony with the Old Testament teaching, that even Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then in chapter 5, you remember that he talks about how a justified person also possesses other blessings. So when we're justified by faith, we also receive peace, grace, a standing in God's favor, joy, and a hope of future glory. Right? And all of this is also received through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he talks about why that is. Because Jesus' obedience as the second Adam has overcome Adam's disobedience. And we remember that famous passage where he parallels Jesus and Adam. And he talks about where sin abounded, grace has abounded much more in Christ. And then, in Romans 6, so we started into Romans 6 last week, he sort of focuses in on that line where Paul says, if where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And he says, wait a second. He anticipates an objection. If that's true then why shouldn't we just sin so that grace might abound? And we've talked about how really what he's doing is he's responding to a potential objection to all that he's been saying. If we're justified by grace through faith, apart from works, well then, why not just sin? Right? What, what motivation would we have to obey God? Uh, and this is where he says, you know, if where sin increased, grace abounds all the more, does that mean that we should just continue sinning? And remember, he says, by no means, or absolutely not. And then he explains, the reason is because, at the very same time as we are justified by faith, we also have died in Christ to sin, and now walk in newness of life. In other words, there's been a fundamental break with our old sin nature, and there's been a new birth, a new spiritual life through the resurrection of Christ. And so, not only have we been forgiven, but we've now been made alive in Christ. And that's why we can't just keep, keep sinning. And then, now, today, we're going to see that he answers another objection that someone might raise, particularly from what he says in verse 14. So if you look at Verse 14, just to refresh your memory, the very end of that first section we looked at in chapter 6, he says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And what he's going to do in our section is he's going to anticipate another objection that someone might raise to what he just said there, you are not under law, but under grace. And he's going to answer that objection in the rest of this chapter. So really... Chapter 6 is all about answering two potential objections to his teaching on justification by faith. Alright, so that's where we're headed today. And let's just dive in here. If someone might just read for us, I know it's just one verse, but if someone might read for us chapter 6, verse 15, just to start us off here. What then are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Okay. So, 
When we look at this, let me just summarize it. You can see here that he's anticipating another objection that someone might raise about what he had just said in verse 14, and he rejects that objection. You know, this is another by no means response, right? So let's dive in here. When you see that phrase, what then, you can see that once again Paul is anticipating some response, some potential objection. He's using that literary device we've, we've talked about before, a diatribe, which just simply means that you're creating a dialogue with an imaginary opponent. And I, I know that sounds weird, but the, but the reason why it's important is because I think it indicates that Paul isn't thinking of particular people in the church at Rome that he's responding to. You know, it's not like he has in mind, you know, John and James and Mary and, you know, Cynthia in the church who are going to hold these views. He's just anticipating what someone might say, someone, an imaginary opponent, and he's interacting with that. It's a teaching device, right? Sometimes you do that as well. Maybe with your kids or maybe with someone, a class that you've taught. All right, so he's interacting with an imaginary opponent. And here's the objection he's anticipating. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? In other words, Paul, if what you just said in verse 14 is true, where you said you are not under law but under grace, and let me just clarify, I talked about this last time. Remember, I had a whole slide and I had to kind of skip through it. But when Paul says we are not under law but under grace, he certainly does not mean that we're not under God's commands in any way. We're not obligated to keep God's commands in any way, right? That, that would be patently ridiculous. Because in the next part of the book, or in the latter part of the book, he actually gives a whole series of commands and instructions, right? In fact, he even refers to the Old Testament law and some of its commands. And talks about how we are to fulfill it. So he's not saying that we're not under the law of God in any way. Rather, I think this is a what you might call a, a redemptive historical category. The law referring to the Old Covenant. He's saying we're not under the Old Covenant law. We're not, we don't belong to the nation of Israel anymore such that we are under the law of Moses. But we are under grace. And of course, in this context, that's a way of saying you're in Christ. You're under the New Covenant, right? And so, there certainly is moral obligations, there are commands of God, including many, the moral commands of the Old Testament still teach you what is right and wrong, but he's saying we are not under that old uh, covenant with its law anymore, and that's important because what was the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? The old covenant? Obey and be blessed, disobey and be cursed. Okay. That's true, but something more fundamental to them than that. Under the Old Covenant, God gave Israel two tablets with the law, right? And he said, keep them. But were they able to do that? <laughs> Why? What was lacking? Sinful nature. Right? There was no inner transformation, right? There was no regeneration promise. Uh, and also... The, did it provide forgiveness under the Old Covenant? Was there forgiveness of sin? There was sacrifices, but what was the problem? But the they just were repeated over and over. Right. This was the whole point of the book of Hebrews, right? 
that the blood of goats and bulls could never take away sin, right? So there was a need for permanent forgiveness, a right standing that would, that would be permanent. And, and there was also a need for an inner transformation so that they could actually begin to obey God as they could. Otherwise, what kept leading them into trouble? Their sinful hearts, right? They were in bondage to sin. So he's saying, look, we're not under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant in which God says, I will remember your sins no more, right? And I will write my law upon your hearts, not just on tablets of stone and give it to you. I will actually give you an inward disposition to obey my law, right? So I think that's what he's talking about. People are no longer under the rule of the old covenant law in that way, but they're under the rule of grace in Christ. They've been forgiven and inwardly transformed. And so this is his point. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? If you think that, you haven't understood what he means, right? In other words, Okay, if we're not under the old covenant and it's law anymore, does that mean we can just keep sinning? What's he going to say? By no means. Absolutely not. Another way we're saying it is, no way, right? Um, It's an emphatic negation. Okay, so that's the objection, and that's his initial response. But, he goes on to expand it. So, if someone would read verses 16 through 18 for us. Verses 16 through 18. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were commanded. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. Okay. So, we just summarize this. In this section, Paul explains why his teaching in verse 14, particularly, you are not under law, but under grace. He's explaining why that does not, in any way, shape, or form, mean that those who are in Christ now, under grace, can just continue living in sin. And you can see here, the fundamental reason that he gives is that those that are in Christ have been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. This is a very important concept for us to consider here. Uh, Sometimes people think that what the gospel is about is freeing you from the guilt of your sin. You've been forgiven. Now go and live however you would like. right? Because... And that, that's exactly what Paul's rejecting here, right? And he's, this is the second part of it. You become a slave to righteousness. Okay, so this is, he's using the imagery of slavery here to describe our new relationship to sin and to God. We've been set free from the slavery, the sin that we previously experienced, and we have become slaves to righteousness instead. Okay, so let's work through this. So Paul establishes a principle here. First off in verse 16. Notice he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? 
So the first thing he does is he establishes this principle. And here's a principle. And the principle can basically, so the, the first principle is, is right here. You are slaves of the one whom you obey. That's the principle. If you're obeying someone, something, you're a slave to that thing. That's his basic principle. And he might qualify it in different ways, but he's laying that principle out. So you, to put it another way, you can know who a person's master is by looking at who they are obeying in their life. You guys see the principle? You are slaves to the one you obey. So, you want to know who your master is? Who are you serving in your life? Does that make sense? That's the principle he's establishing first. And then in the rest of the verse, he sort of, where it says, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So you can see he's identifying two masters here, whom he's calling sin and obedience. And he's explaining the result of being enslaved to either one of those two masters. So slavery to sin, what's the result? Death. Right? Slavery to obedience. And I think earlier in uh, chapter 6, he talked about presenting yourselves to God. There, there's a sense in which that would be synonymous here. Slavery to God, slavery to his will, slavery to obedience. What does that lead to? Righteousness. So, you're a slave to whoever you obey. And here's two different masters. If you're, you could be a slave to sin, or a slave to God. That is, slave to obedience. To God. And what's the result of each? Well, if you serve sin, that will lead to death. If you serve God, if you serve obedience, that will lead to righteousness. And this is really, let's look back at this text here, uh, Romans 6, 12-13. It's really just a, a restatement of what he had said in, in these verses. He said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. So there, sin is the master, right? Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't come under the, the mastery, the rule of sin. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So what would be the result of serving sin? Unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion under you, since you are not under law but under grace. So really, this is just flowing out of that. And he's just restating it here. You're, you are a slave to the one you obey. If you're a slave to sin, that will result in death. If you're a slave to God or to obedience, that will result in righteousness. You can see he's setting up, he's establishing this as a principle. And then, in these two verses here, verses 17 through 18, he's saying what's true of us as Christians. So he established the principle, right? And then he's applying it to us and saying, but here's the good news about you. Thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. The gospel, right? The teaching of the apostles. The teaching of Jesus given through the apostles. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. 
So here he establishes the principle, you're a slave to whoever you obey. If you serve sin, it will lead to death. If you serve obedience, it will lead to righteousness. You used to be a slave of sin. Now you, are, you have become obedient to God in your heart, and you've been set free from sin to become a slave of righteousness. Now, when he talks about being a slave of sin, I think what he's talking about is being a slave to the sinful desires of your, your flesh, your, your sinful nature, right? Does anyone know what that's about? <laughs> right? We all know, right? Um, you see someone at your work get a promotion that you should have got. What happens in your heart, in your flesh? Ooh, jealousy, anger, right? Or you, you see some provocative sexual content somewhere on a billboard. What happens in your flesh? Sexually immoral desires, right? Or you see someone, one of your children contradicts your will, right? And you see what rises up. Sinful. So this is what he's talking about. But he's saying before, you were just in bondage to those sinful desires, right? There was no freedom. So this is what he's talking about back in chapter 6, verse 12. Look what he said. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. There it is, right there, right? We used to be dead in trespasses and sins. We used to just be carried along by our passions. We willingly did whatever the flesh wanted. Right? So, just one other verse here. Would someone be willing to read Titus 3 3 for us? We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Okay, so you see, he's talking about our former condition. You were once. And then he says, he, part of that condition is you were once slaves to various passions and pleasures, right? The desires of your flesh controlled you, right? Okay, so that's the slavery he's talking about. You were slaves to sin, but you have become, notice, obedient from the heart to the teaching of Scripture. I think that's a clear reference to regeneration, right? He's saying, another way of putting it using Jesus' language is, you have been born again of the Spirit, right? Or Paul in Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins, now you have been made alive in Christ, right? You have been created anew, created for good works, that you should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2.10, right? This was something that was predicted by the prophets. I already mentioned this verse. That's where Jesus, or the, the God said to the prophet, I'll make a new covenant, the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Part of that new covenant was the promise that I will write my law upon your heart, right? You have become obedient from the heart to the teaching, the standard of teaching. I will write my law upon your heart, right? That's the promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, let's just look at this real quick. I will read it for you. Ezekiel 36, 27. This was another prophecy. It was... Referring, I believe, to the same thing, the promises of the new covenant. And this is what God said through the prophet. I will put my spirit within you. So who is the spirit of God? Right? The person of the Holy Spirit. I will put my spirit within you. 
He will dwell within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed, right? So he's saying, you used to be just enslaved to the passions of your flesh, but there's been a break. You have been brought from death to life, born again of the Spirit. God has put His Spirit within you. He has written His law upon your heart. He's given you an inward disposition now that actually wants to obey God. Imagine that, right? You want to know whether someone has been born again? One of the signs is that while they still sin, they now hate that, and they want to obey God. They're not perfect, but there's a change. They can't just go on sinning like they used to without really much by way of conviction or remorse. Now it's they hate their sin and they want to obey God. They don't just hate their sin because of its consequences. They hate it because they want to obey God. Right? This is what he's talking about. Say, this is what's happened to you. Thanks be to God. You were once slaves to sin and you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have committed, and then he summarizes it here, right? Here's the bottom line. Christians have been freed from their slavery to sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Okay, now, if on the one hand, the slaves to sin refers to the condition of your heart, right? that you used to be in bondage to sinful desires of your flesh. Well, slaves of righteousness, on the other hand, probably parallel that. It probably has to do with this. You become obedient from the heart. In other words, now, you don't even have the option to go back to that old condition where you just, you know, sinned really without much by way of constraint. You can't do it now, right? <laughs> you, you can desensitize your conscience through repeated acts of disobedience, but at the end of the day, someone else has taken dominion over your heart now, right? The Holy Spirit of God has been put within you, giving you new spiritual life. Now you become, so that, as Jesus said, blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That's now the condition of your heart. You become a slave of righteousness. Alright, so, I want to stop any questions about that so far? Yeah. Uh, in verse 16, yeah. if you were to like make this a Sunday school question, be like, fill in the blank. You would say, you know, your slaves are the one who you obey either sin or obedience, which leads to like... Right. It would be, if you took a parallel, you know, that right. parallel you would never think of as life, right? Right. Obedience, which leads to life. So, I don't know, why do you think what's... why do you think he says righteousness instead of life? And is there, I mean, what's the connection? Right. Well, I think that in the previous context, he sort of used death and life, guilt and righteousness. Like, in other words, they've sort of been used interchangeably throughout. You know, like if you look back at chapter 5 and the parallel between Adam and Christ, there's you know, sin which leads to condemnation, or he might, it, it leads to death, it leads to the reign of death, where on the other hand, it's, you know, Christ's obedience leads to righteousness, or or life, they're sort of interchangeable, so 
it just it seems to me like because the two go together, he sort of chooses to emphasize righteousness, but it could it's bound up with life. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not exact. I don't know that I can answer. You know, why did he not complete the parallel there? <laughs> that is interesting. What do you think? Yeah, I, just, I think it's a, that there must be a connection between righteousness and life. Like even right. in chapter five, he talks about. That as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to right. eternal life. So I don't, yeah, I don't know why, he, but it's just I think it's important to see like righteousness isn't just like some right. some body of rules and now we have to obey. It's actually life. It's like what we were made to live for. I mean, we'll, when we live in obedience and righteousness, it's right. fulfillment of our right. our creative purpose. Mm-hmm. Right, in this context... Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say, what is a good definition for righteousness? Well, if I was to... If you were to ask, what is righteousness, you know, in the context leading up to this, mm-hmm. you would think in terms of the legal standing, right? Mm-hmm. Justification. I mean, declared righteous. Mm-hmm. But in this context, of course, you talk about slavery to righteousness. It seems like he's talking about... Your the, your the moral conduct of your life, right? That you, so righteousness in this type of context would be obedience to the commands of God, or you might say, you know, the commands of God reflect God's own character. He is righteous, mm-hmm. and therefore you are to live righteous lives like Him, like reflect His character in your life. And what does that look like? Keeping the commands of God. Mm-hmm. And what are the commands of God? Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then you could expand it out. So I think in this context, righteousness here is speaking more to a life of obedience, right? Because you said obedient from the heart. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, and I always think right living is what goes in my mind right. when I see the word righteousness. Right. But it's also, like you said, that um, just, just it's a declaration of right. it's God's it's God's righteousness. It's not ours. And even, yeah, even the declaration mm-hmm. is not totally disconnected from obedience, right? Mm-hmm. Because our declaration is evidenced by is th- nothing other than the imputation of Christ's own righteous record. Mm-hmm. In other words, Christ had to come and live a perfectly a life of perfect obedience to Christ as our representative. Because Adam had come and lived a disobedient life as our representative. So even our justification is connected in with Christ's own righteousness, but reckoned to us. So that, yeah, we're sinners, but we're justified on the basis of Christ's obedience. So I think even, you can never totally, it's not like they're two separate things. You know, the legal standing and the obedient life. It's just that, depending on the context, it might be talking about our obedience, like here, mm-hmm. or in previous chapters it could be talking about our standing based upon Christ's obedience, if that makes sense. Right. That's, those are, that's important um, to make those distinctions. Any other questions? No more questions. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah. Righteousness of God us. Well, and you can you can see that what Paul's doing, right? 
belabored the point. God justifies ungodly people. And someone come along and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Isn't that just going to make people think I, that it doesn't matter if I live an ungodly life? And I would say, no, no. Because you've also been become obedient to the heart. You've been freed from your from the passions of the flesh to live a righteous life. So there's a sense in which you could say your life, your actual conduct is to reflect your legal standing. You have been declared righteous and now you are also to live righteous lives. Yeah. So what would you say to somebody who I guess is asking you, hey, you know, I'm, I should be free to live how I want. Right. Because there should be a natural desire to please and obey Christ. Yeah, so I would say, so the New Testament often does this. If, if a person has that attitude, right? Hey, I'm forgiven. You know, God's in the business of forgiving, therefore I can sin with impunity, right? Then, what the scripture tends to do is come along and say, do not be deceived, right? Those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, right? So, then I would come and say, if you think that way, and if you're actually living that out, you probably, you need to question whether you've been saved, right? Because, and that, I, that's how I think the Bible does that. Now, if you have a, someone else who's coming along and say, but I sin so much, I can't possibly be saved, right? Then the Bible comes along and says, hey, your salvation isn't based upon your works, right? Or maybe it's not, you know, not, not sin, but just not a desire to live for God, right? But still thinking they're saved, but just there's no truth and there's no desire. But all I'm saved, I'm good, I'm not necessarily living in, you know, practicing blatant disobedience. Well, and, and that's where I would say that the type of obedience that he's talking about here begins with the heart. So if a person, if, if what you're seeing in the person is a fairly moral and religious person who doesn't really have a desire to obey, then I say that right there is a matter of obedience because the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Paul actually says at the end of 1 Corinthians, I've always been struck by this. He says, 1 Corinthians 16.22, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Right? So that's a very strong statement, but he's getting to the core of what obedience is. Right? It starts with love. So Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So if you have a person who outwardly conforms to certain standards, but shows no inward, real love for Christ, that right there is something I put my finger on and say, friend, do you love Jesus Christ? Right? If you do not love him, then you need to really question whether you've been born again. Right? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then, and if they say, well, I love, but you say, but 
And, and if a person is living in disobedience, you say, but Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands, right? Mm-hmm. So how can you say you love God and walk in darkness, right? This is First John. So those are the ways that I would approach it. Yeah, That's not easy, and you want to be very careful, because if a person is struggling with a lack of assurance, then you, you don't want to take that tack. <laughs> That's a tack for someone who sins with impunity, right? There's a phrase, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Right, right. And that's always helped me to try to decide which one are they. Yeah. If they're just struggling with, I'm so sinful, and how could God love me? That's a different thing. And so I think, well, why should I bother? And if someone is struggling with a lack of assurance, usually I point them to the free grace of God in Christ and the promises and say, hey, stop looking at your own sin. Start looking at the promises of God and the the, the death of Christ for your sin, right? So, okay, let's move forward here. I want to tackle an interpretive question here. He says, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. Now, the question is, what does Paul mean when he says, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one you obey? One option is that what he's saying is that your habitual obedience reveals a condition of slavery. Another option is your habitual obedience leads to a condition of slavery. Right? Now, in this particular context, there, there's a sense in which the option one is true, and option two can also be true, depends on which... The question is, which is Paul referring to here? It seems to me like option two is more likely because he seems to be speaking to believers and speaking of what will happen to them if they serve sin or if they serve righteousness. And I say that partly because of the context. If you look back at Romans 6, verses 12 and 13, He's telling them, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey his passion. Say, you're a believer. Sin isn't your master. So don't keep serving it, right? Instead, he says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as instruments for righteousness. So, you're not under the dominion of sin anymore. You're under God's rule. So don't, so live like it. Don't keep presenting yourselves to sin as if sin were your master, right? And I, I, I think, although I could be wrong, but I think that that's what he's talking about here too, that if you present yourselves to sin, you're acting as if sin is your master, right? And in fact, uh, we know this by experience, you can come under sort of a temporary bondage again of your sinful desires. But I think his point is that, hey, if you are serving sin, then that's as if sin was your master. If you're serving Christ, that's as if then you're living out your identity, that Christ is your master. And so he seems to be speaking of the same two options he was speaking of in verses 12 and 13, but his emphasis here is upon the results, right? If you serve sin, it will lead to death. If you serve... Uh, oh, God, it will lead to righteousness. Now, of course, 
we know that if a believer serves sin, comes into a sort of a bondage to their sinful desires by obeying them again and again and again, that is contrary to the identity to Christ. They're serving sin, but they're not actually under the dominion of sin. And therefore we know this is not going to be a permanent thing, right? That it will be a, a temporary condition as God will liberate them from that. This is where you get the passage like Galatians 6 where Paul says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, sort of temporary state of bondage to sinful desires, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, right? So sometimes we could be caught, right? And we feel like we can't get out. We feel, because we've been serving certain desires, we can feel a sense of bondage. But in reality, we are we are free from the rule of sin, and we are free to serve Christ. Now that might take the help of brothers and sisters, it might take renewal of your mind, so you stop certain patterns of thinking and other things that have been leading you astray. But you can you, you don't have to live that way. That's the point. So it's in some ways I think there's hope here. Is that anyone have questions there? Yeah, Ashley. Um, if you go with option two, right. how do you deal with the, the second part of the verse that says you are slaves? So the conditional part, if you present yourself, so if you present yourself as obedient to either sin or righteousness, and then there's the you yeah. are slaves. Obviously, Paul doesn't believe you can be a slave of sin one day, slave to righteousness right. the next day, back and forth. I, so, yeah, it, I mean, this is where it is a tough interpretive question. Under option two, you would have to mean you're you're giving yourself, you're serving sin, right? You are slaves of sin in the sense that this is how you're acting, right? But it wouldn't be your fundamental identity, right? But that's why it's a tough interpretive question. It, it could go either way, I think. Yeah, I think you said the term like as if, right? So you think that Paul maybe is saying you are slaves, but behind those words, it's more like it's as if you are slaves. Yeah, don't serve sin. If you serve sin, then it's like you're a slave to sin, right? I think that's how I'm interpreting it. It, it may be the other option, that he's simply speaking of your fundamental identity. Or like a temptation. The more you give into it, the easier it is to do. So, I guess. Right, I mean, yeah, that would be more along the lines of option two. Yeah. It's a tough interpretive question, but... Okay, let's move forward because I'm running out of time here, like always. Let's read verses 19. Well, verse 19. It's just one long verse. And speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So here, if I were to summarize it, He's explained that those in Christ can't continue living in sin because they've been set free from sin. they become slaves of righteousness. And it's as if now he's exhorting them to live according to that reality. You see that? Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, so now present yourselves, your members, to righteousness. So this is what is true of you now, Live in 
accordance with that, right? Which is a very common way that Paul exhorts us to obedience, right? This is who you are in Christ, therefore live like it. So this is, in, in many ways, uh, just following that common pattern. Now, when he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, I'm actually going to explain this in an interpretive question, but I think he's just, he's acknowledging that the metaphor of slavery that he's been using is imperfect. But he's using it because it's something that human beings understand, right? It will help them grasp what he's talking about. So he's using it because of their natural limitations. Okay, so he says... You once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So using this, because of their natural limitations, using this human analogy that they would understand of slavery. By the way, we don't understand slavery as well because it's just not part of our world, typically. There is still slavery in the world and even in our country in some ways, but in terms of you know the sex trade and whatnot. But it's not something that we, it's like right in our face. But in that day, there are a range of estimates as to how what percentage of the Roman Empire were slaves. But even in the church, you see, slaves obey your masters was a common instruction. That's because there was lots of slaves in the church even. Slavery was very common. So he's using that imagery. He's saying, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So before they were in Christ, they used to use their bodies, their members, right? Their physical bodies to obey their impure desires, their lawless desires of their sinful nature. And over time, what did that what happened? Their lives were just filled with more and more unrighteousness, right? Which by the way, when he had said, You are not under law, under grace, that's good news because under law what happened? It didn't help them. Being under law didn't help them. It just, they had lawless desires, right? And so the law couldn't sanctify them. They needed something else, right? They needed the spirit to sanctify them. Under the law, they just kept giving their body over to lawless desires, and it just led to their lives being filled with more and more lawlessness. Some of you, like, have this very vivid understanding or re recollection of your life before Christ, and you can you can uh, relate with this, right? And then he says, for just as, and I'm just bringing this, just to show you the grammatical construction, I'm bringing this down here, just as you did this, so now present your members, the members of your body, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification it's a word that means holiness, set apart unto God for his use, right? Um, so a shovel in the tabernacle could be holy, set apart unto God for his use. But in our whole bodies, ourselves, we are holy. We have been set apart unto God for his use. So now that's what we're to do. We're to present our bodies to God to do what is right before him. And that results in growth and holiness over time. Now let me just walk through another interpretive question. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. 
Paul seems to be referring here to this metaphor of slavery, because do you think in that time, would slavery have had a positive or a negative connotation with people? Negative, right? No one likes slavery. And he's probably sensitive to that because he's talking about being a slave to righteousness. Okay, slave to sin, that's understandable. That, slave to righteousness? How could that be a good thing, right? And so he's recognizing that this slavery metaphor might rub them the wrong way in certain certain ways. And so he says, I'm speaking in human terms. In other words, I'm using a category that human beings understand as part of your experience. But the reason he says I'm speaking in human terms, the reason he qualifies it is he's saying, look, I know this isn't a perfect analogy. Right? In other words, slavery to righteousness, being a bondservant of Christ, didn't involve degradation and oppression like you know you think of when you hear the word slavery. And so Paul says, I'm just simply using it because of your natural limitations. Because sometimes it's hard for you to understand, this might help you understand. Uh, natural limitations probably just refers to not moral limitations, not because they're fallen, but intellectual limitations. In other words, because sometimes this is, it's hard for you to understand these concepts, I'm using something that you can really grasp and relate to. Okay, I'm going to skip this last point for the sake of time. But let's look at these last verses, 620, and I'll just read them because of the sake of time here. 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So remember that, when you quote that verse, remember, feel its context here, right? doesn't mean that the way you use it is necessarily wrong, but understand the context. Okay, so what's he saying here? He had just finished explaining why Christians should serve righteousness and not sin, right? He'd say, in the same way you used to serve sin with your bodies, now serve righteousness instead. And here, he's explaining why you should do that. Why should you serve righteousness instead of sin? Well, because when you serve sin, it just leads to things that you're ashamed of, right? And which lead to death. But if you serve righteousness, it produces holiness, which leads to life in the end. Right? So you can see, for, that indicates this is another reason why they should serve righteousness and not sin. Verse 20, when they were unbelievers, when you were slaves of sin, when they were unbelievers, they just served sin freely. Really, without constraint. I think that's the idea of you were slaves to sin, and you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't have that inward compulsion to do what was right. You were bondage to sin, right? And he said, where did that lead you? Well, what was the result? It led to things which now you're ashamed of. You guys relate to that? Things you did when you were a slave to sin that now you look back on and you're ashamed of them. They're shameful, right? And they would have led you to eternal ruin. 
But here, now, in Christ, they're no longer enslaved to the lust of the flesh. They're not enslaved to sin, but they are inwardly compelled to obey God. That's what I think he means by, by becoming slaves of God. Right? Their hearts have no, are no longer under the rule of sinful desires. Now they have holy desires. And what's the fruit of it? The fruit of it is holy living. And the end of that is eternal life, right? So if you think of, you know, why should you obey God rather than sin, now that you've been freed from sin to serve God? Man, because of the results. They're so much better, right? Serving sin leads to shame and destruction. Serving God leads to holiness and life. Very simple, right? The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life. Let me just look at this very quickly. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That could really hit you weird. Like, wait, I was free? Does that mean I didn't have to do what was right when I was a slave of sin? Well, of course not, right? He had just spent three chapters almost talking about the moral obligation of unbelievers. How they're under God's wrath for their unrighteousness, right? So, when he says you were free in regard to righteousness, he doesn't mean... Well, before you were a Christian, it didn't really matter. You weren't responsible because you were in bondage to sin. No, you, you were in bondage to sin because your desires were corrupt, so you willingly did what was wrong all, you know, all the time. But, but that doesn't mean, you didn't mean that they were free from moral obligation. Rather, the, con- the whole context is about the experience of being under dominating powers, Right? You are under the rule of sin to make you obey its passion. That's the idea. That's that's what he means when you are free in regard to righteousness. He's talking about you are free from those the dominating powers of the Holy Spirit who compels you to obey God. You didn't have that. You just were slaves to sin and its dominating power. Right? So his point here seems to be that an unregenerate person is under the dominating power of his sinful desires, and in that condition, they don't have that inward compulsion to obey God that a regenerate person indwelt by the Spirit has, right? Remember that phrase in verse 17? You become obedient from the heart. So I think that's the idea. He's saying you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't have that obedience from the heart that you have now. That's all he means. He doesn't mean you weren't obligated to do what was right. So an unbeliever just obeys the desires of the flesh freely, with very little restraint. Now when I say that, I recognize there are some restraints. He talked about this in chapter 2. An unbeliever has a conscience, right? So there's a restraint of your conscience. That's why you guys know unbelievers who do bad things and they feel bad about it. Thank goodness for the conscience. What would happen if we didn't have the restraint of the human conscience? And we also have, Romans 13, the restraint of civil government, right? Which uses the sword to restrain evil. So it's not that there's no restraint, but he's saying you didn't have the restraint of the Holy Spirit in a regenerate heart. Does that make sense? I think that's what he means when he says you were free in regard to righteousness. Any quick questions on that to clarify? Or Okay. All right, let me just remind you then of the whole point of this passage. Let's walk through it. 
Paul had said, you are not under law, but under grace. At the end of our passage last week, he anticipated a potential objection. What then? If we're not under the law, under grace, are we to sin? Continue sinning? And he answered, absolutely not. Verse 15. And then in the rest of our passage, he explains why. Because you've been set free from sin to become slaves of righteousness. And because serving sin leads to shame and death. While serving righteousness leads to holiness and eternal life. Right? So it's an identity issue. You have been. And it's also a fruit issue. Right? If you do this, it'll lead to this. If you do this, it'll lead to this. Alright. Let's just look at a few applications here. One. We should understand our true spiritual condition in Christ as being freed from slavery to sin and enslaved to righteousness through regeneration. So there's both a hope and a bite to that, right? The hope is that even when you feel in bondage to sin, you actually aren't, right? That should give you hope. I can, no, I, I know that I can obey God. I can change. I might need help. I might need people to point out wrong thinking. I might, I might have mixed up desires that all are hindering me and made me caught in sin here. But I'm not. I'm not going to despair. I'm going to seek help from the church. But I'm going to know that God has fundamentally freed me. Right? That um, that bitterness that seems to have locked up my soul, those sexual desires that seem to have entangled me, the struggle with envy, all of these things, I can, I'm not in bondage to these things, right? There's hope, but there's also bite, right? Because if you're a slave to righteousness, you can't just say, well, it's all forgiven, and it doesn't really matter how I live. That's contrary to your identity too, right? So we, we can't be content to live in sin. If, if we're walking in a pattern of sin, it should make us very uncomfortable, miserable, because we recognize that we're just a walking contradiction. We're contradicting our true identity in Christ. Right? So living in sin for a period of time does not necessarily mean that you're not saved. Right? Think of Peter, denied Christ three times could be just a temporary entanglement. But over the long haul, like Adam, you were saying, if, if what you're seeing about your soul is you really don't have a desire to please Christ, and you really love your sin more, that you don't want to give it up, then probably what's happened is you're not just walking in contradiction to your true identity. You don't have that true identity. And you need to repent, right? This is why the church is called to say if a person refuses to repent of sin, what are we to do? Treat them as an unbeliever, right? We can't affirm a person's salvation if they're persisting without repentance and living in contradiction to it, right? And then, if a person obeys sinful desires freely without any compulsion to obey God, in other words, if they are free in regard to righteousness in that way, right? free in regard to righteousness, they haven't become obedient to the heart, in the heart, to obey God. Well, then they're, they're not a Christian, right? Mm -hmm. So, if someone says, well, you can be a carnal Christian, you can just, 
you've made a decision to follow Christ and you're saved, but then you don't have to live a life of obedience to God. You don't understand Paul's theology, right? Because Paul says, if you have been justified by faith, at the very same time you have died to sin and you now live to God. You have been free from slavery to sin and become a slave of righteousness. The two go together. Justification and sanctification are inseparable. If you have experienced one, you have experienced the other. If you haven't experienced sanctification, you don't have justification. Does that make sense? Okay, that's important. And then finally, we should learn to hate sin because of its terrible fruits. That's what he's saying. It leads to shame. It leads to destruction. And we should love righteousness because of its wonderful results. This is what we're always trying to teach our kids, right? The way of the transgressor is hard. Don't go down that path. Right? It, it's just it's going to lead to pain and heartache, right? But righteousness leads to life. So God doesn't say to us, obey my commands to suck all of the fun out of life and to make us miserable. He says, obey my commands because they lead to life. And they lead to blessing, right? Um, so, that's something that we can remember ourselves and we can pass on to others. Well, with those things aside, let me close us in prayer. Next week we'll dive into chapter 7. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful truths of this passage that most fundamentally they tell us of the new relationship to our old sinful nature that we have. We're no longer the slave of our sinful passions. But the body of sin has been brought to nothing. We have died to sin in Christ. And we have been set free from its slavery. And now we have new life in Christ. We walk in newness of life. You have so worked in our souls inwardly that we have become obedient from the heart to Christ. And that we now are slaves of righteousness that leads to holiness and life. Thank you, O oh God, for not only forgiving our sins and declaring us righteous, imputing the righteousness of Christ to us. But thank you for uniting us to him in his death and resurrection such that we walk in newness of life. And Lord, we know this is only a foretaste that our experience of remaining corruption will not go on forever, but is only a mark of this temporary vapor-like life that one day we will be raised in glorified bodies, freed from every last vestige of sin. We long for that. But we thank you that even now we have the first fruits of it by the regenerating work of the Spirit. We already are new creations. Help us to walk in these realities. Lord, I pray if anyone in this room is still struggling with entanglement and sins, that you would give them hope through this and that you would um, help them to uh, press on toward 
defeating sin by the power of the Spirit and um, with the help of the body of Christ and that they would have hope to keep putting one foot in front of the other, fighting their sin, that they would experience afresh the liberation that they have in Christ. And so, Father, we just commit these things to you and ask that they would have an impact upon us. We pray it in Jesus' name.